following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Uh, today, as you may have noticed, we're missing uh, a few regular folks that we normally expect to see here. Um, Bobby and Brittany and their kids, the Oliveris, are enjoying a week off today, and uh, so we will be keeping them in our prayers. Um, but I think uh, more interestingly also, um, John and Sandra Honorio have uh, welcomed their seventh child into the world. Um, Alma was born, I believe, on Friday, Thursday or Friday. Um, she's healthy, the family is well, and so we, are, uh, we will be very excited to, to meet her and, uh, and to welcome them back. So we will also be... Uh, also be keeping them in our prayers this morning. Um, so before we begin, let's uh, please join me as I pray. We will pray for God to open up his word to us uh, and also pray for those who um, are, are absent uh, from us today. So Father, thank you for the unity that we do share in Christ. Thank you for the, the people that you have made us into um, and the, the togetherness that we share even when absent in the body. Uh, and so then in that light, we we pray for the, the health and well-being and peace uh, to those who belong to our church but who are not with us today, um, for the Oliveris and the Honorios and, and, uh, and all the others that have not, uh, that are not here this morning. Um, thank you for the, the health of little Alma. Um, thank you for the, the um, just happiness and joy that she's brought to her family and, and will soon bring to all of us as we get to meet her. Please open up your word to us. Please Teach us and uh, soften our hearts to receive the instruction that you have sent to us uh, through time and place to arrive to us today um, by your providence just as we need to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, friends, um, you may be able to hear it in my voice. I, I'm a couple days off of a little cold and have kind of a sore throat. And uh, also, John was supposed to be preaching today, but of course, with the arrival of his little baby girl, uh, I was called up from the, uh, from the minor leagues. Um, so uh, th this is going to be just a shorter sermon today um, due to lack of preparation and not wanting to talk any more than I need to. Um, but that's fine. That will give us uh, more, more time at the end. As, as you all know, um, the Lawrences, this is our, their last Sunday with us, so we can all spend uh, as much time as we would like saying goodbye and, uh, and enjoying their company. Um, so if you would like to follow along, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the main text will be from verses 4 through 12. So that's 1 Peter chapter 2. The book of 1 Peter was written by Peter, of course, uh, to Christians. And Peter spends a lot of time talking about holiness and hope and what it means to be the people of God. Uh, and so the audience that he was originally writing to would have been primarily Israelite or Jewish Christians. And so they would have understood very much the idea of what it means to be a people. In fact, they were a people ethnically and religiously. Um, their primary source of identity at that time would have been Jewish as opposed to uh, individualistic, like we are today. Um, so this was a very familiar idea, to sort of lose a little bit of your identity, to lose a little piece of your individualism, and instead replace it with membership in a people. But that, of course, is foreign and even anathema to the modern psyche. We, we have the idea of the individual <laughs> ego, the personal journey, the, the self-made 
individual. Uh, and these are our cultural assumptions and our cultural starting points as we approach this text. So um, I would encourage you to try to consider, as we're reading today, uh, to consider what it would be like to read this passage or to hear this text originally written to you, um, but with the idea that the most important thing about who you are is not uh, what you do or your personality or your internal thoughts or emotions, but rather that the most important thing about you as a person was what group you belonged to, what type of people you were a member of. Uh, and we are going to find out, as Christians then, exactly what type of people we are indeed members of. So let's read the text today. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4-12. through 12. <clears throat> As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. So in this passage, Peter is creating for us an image of what the people of God look like. What it means to be not just individually a believer in Jesus, but corporately together for us to be the people of God. And he connects to themes from earlier in his letter about holiness and the hope that we have because of the holiness that has changed the inside of us, the hope that we have in Christ. All of that comes together now. We are a people of hope and holiness. So I'm going to read through this text throughout the sermon. I'm going to read through it three times, each time emphasizing a different sort of category of teaching or a different point of view from which to read. So first we are going to look at who the people of God are not. Then we are going to look at who the people of God are. And finally, I'm going to read through with an emphasis on what the people of God do. So let's read through this text again, this time emphasizing what Peter says in contrast to the people of God. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what then is evidence of or what pervades the lives of those who are not the people of God? The very definition of those who are not the people of God are the ones who reject the living stone. And this living stone, we know, is Jesus Christ. He foretells that upon him the whole temple is built. He is the, the cornerstone. And in, in um, ancient architecture, I guess, the cornerstone was a stone that was laid as part of the foundation in the corner, the most structural corner of the building. And so this cornerstone not only was going to bear a great majority of the weight of the building, but the way the cornerstone was set and how properly it was cut square would determine how square the rest of the building was. You set the cornerstone and then you lay each stone next to the cornerstone in a row. And so if the cornerstone is, is bent or askew, so then the entire building will be bent and askew. But in fact, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone holding up, supporting, directing the entire temple of the people of God. But those who reject Jesus, they reject the cornerstone. They reject the temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus and in fact find themselves building buildings that are just nothing more than a pile of rocks or built on a foundation of sand with no firm and square foundation upon which to build a temple. So they reject this living stone Jesus, and as a result then, they are put to shame because they do not believe. Their temple, their houses are crooked and crumbling and falling apart. They stumble, and they are even offended by Jesus. They are predestined to disobey him. Nothing that you can do with a crooked cornerstone can make that house or make that temple a secure and stable and square building. These descriptions that we find in this text and everywhere in Scripture often paint a grim picture of those who are outside of the people of God. We find the description here of people who are just fundamentally, in their very heart, their very core, essential to their nature, in opposition to God. Which is why I think it's worthwhile then to begin by looking at the contrasts in this passage. Because these contrasts teach us, those of us who are a part of the people of God, a vital truth about God's will and his means of salvation and about us and our nature. See, those who reject Jesus, who stumble and disobey and do not believe, do so, as it says here, because they were destined to do so. Their, their nature and their instinct, the default posture of mankind, is disobedience, which leads to shame and ultimately destruction. The difference between God's people, then, and the rest of the world isn't primarily one of outward appearance or actions. 
In other words, the people of God aren't fundamentally the people of God because they behave, but rather of their very nature, of their very destiny. We are fundamentally inside first in our very soul part of the people of God. And likewise, those who are not part of the people of God are fundamentally and inside at their very soul not part of the people of God. And so we're going to continue and we're going to see how God does transform us into a people and how as a people we look and act differently than other people. But we must recognize coming into it that we do not do so in order to distinguish ourselves. But because we have so been fundamentally distinguished, we of course then act differently. So having laid this foundation, let us continue and read the passage again, this time focusing on what exactly it is that the people of God are. We see what we are not, but we also see that God has chosen a people. He has chosen we here who believe to be his people, and so we are not destined for shame. And so what then are we? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so you see now many ways in which Peter describes us, the people of God. Each one of these is enough to chew on for hours. You could, you could study throughout the entire Bible, each of these different definitions or descriptions of the people of God and find immeasurable depth and meaning in all of them. But first and foremost, we see that the people of God are like Christ. Christ is the living stone we see in the very beginning. But we ourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so Christ, this cornerstone, this, this strong and perfectly square and well-set cornerstone is the beginning, the foundation of a temple, and we are the living stones that are being built up into this great and glorious temple, this dwelling place of God. So we, like Jesus, we following in the lines that the cornerstone has drawn, so also are built up into this temple of God. Jesus sets the standard, 
but then we are like him, also living stones. God is building a temple to display his glory, and the very materials that he uses to build it are his people. Part of what it means then to be the people of God is to be a part of the work that he is building for his glory. Like Christ, whom the builders first rejected by their own ignorance and lack of understanding, for Christ was, of course, the perfect cornerstone and fit all along, but the builders, they rejected Christ. Likewise, we also can expect to be rejected. We can expect to feel like our stone is the wrong shape or doesn't fit into the building. We can expect to be passed over, overlooked, disregarded, cast aside. But take comfort then in the fact that we know that we are like Jesus in this way. Jesus was cast aside, and yet it turns out he was the perfect cornerstone. For you must realize that if you were to fit in perfectly with all the other stones used to build all the other buildings, you would fit with them, destined for destruction, suitable only to build buildings that crumble. There would be no place for you in the walls of God's house. But rather, we can take hope, we can take joy in the fact that we, instead of fitting in with the world, fit in with the cornerstone of Jesus. So we are being built into this temple, built on the unexpected and yet perfect cornerstone of Jesus. But then Peter says, not only are we the temple, we are also the priesthood that worships within the temple. A holy priesthood. So consider what it means to be both the temple and the priest. So in the Old Testament, where the temple was initiated by God and where the priesthood was instituted by God over the nation of Israel, to be a priest was an incredible privilege and a great responsibility. The temple was a deeply important, holy place where the people of God would go to meet with God. And so there were strict rules for entering the temple and working in the temple and being a priest. God himself literally manifested his presence for the people of Israel in the temple. And so the way in which the temple was entered was of vital importance. This house of God, which was first a tabernacle, that's a tent, and later a stone temple, was built to exacting specifications. There were layers and rooms of increasing holiness, symbols of God's character and reminders of the work that he had done, magnificent displays of glory. Listen as Solomon dedicates the temple here in 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled his house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and give thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And so this image, this image of such intense glory and holiness that even the priests set apart and specially cleansed and prepared to enter could not approach this temple now, after Jesus, is built of living stones. No longer is there a physical temple, for the curtain was torn and the temple was destroyed. The temple is now you. You, the people of God. No longer a tent or a building, but a people. We are the dwelling place of God 
being built together for his glory. And not only the temple then, but the priesthood. Only priests were ever allowed inside those holy places in the temple. And they were only permitted to do so to make sacrifices and worship God. And within that holy place was an even holier place, separated by a heavy curtain in which lied the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's very presence lived on earth. And once a year, the high priest alone could enter that room to make sacrifice for all of the sins of all of the people of Israel. Before he entered, he had to cleanse himself many times over with specific instructions to wear specially prepared garments for no other purpose and to make a sacrifice for himself and his family even before he could enter to make a sacrifice for Israel. But now we are all a holy, a purified, a clean priesthood welcomed into the holy place to be directly with God. In Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is us, the people of God. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through his flesh. So for all the people of God throughout history, all of Israel as the people of God, only a tiny fraction of them could ever enter the holy place, and only a fraction of those could ever enter the presence of God. But now, Jesus, tearing the curtain of the temple with his death, invites us all to enter as living stones and holy priests into the very presence of God. And if this is the priesthood then, the privilege then of priesthood, there is also the practice of priesthood. To be a holy priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, as we see back in our text in 1 Peter. In the Old Testament law, sacrifices were given to make atonement for sin, but we know from what we've read that the blood of goats and bulls cannot actually compensate God for our sins against him. The Bible says so in numerous places in the Old Testament, like Micah and Hosea and the Psalms. And then again in the New Testament, reinforced Matthew and Romans and Hebrews. Physical sacrifices were not an act of repayment, but an act of faith and obedience, and were a reminder and a ritual and a lesson to direct God's people to repentance, which is what God truly desires. So that means that the physical sacrifices, when performed with impure hearts, serve no purpose whatsoever. And God often says to Israel that he rejects her sacrifices because they are oppressing the downtrodden or lying or worshiping false gods while they do it. Only sacrifices made in a holy way are holy. And we now can make such sacrifices, such holy sacrifices, because we are the people of God, and not like, as Peter describes, those who are not the people of God, those who are destined for disobedience. The people of God are destined for righteousness. Those who are destined for disobedience can only make false sacrifices because their hearts are false. But we, because the Holy Spirit has given us new hearts in Jesus, are now capable ourselves of giving acceptable, holy, spiritual sacrifices. We, by Jesus' death and resurrection, are in fact made holy. And then the sacrifices that we are able to give are then considered holy. And remember, again, we are not chosen by God because of us. We're not 
chosen by God because we are more holy or have, have a better chance of being holy, but rather we're chosen by God and then he makes us holy. We're a chosen people, not an accomplished people. And Peter even says, he says that we're a, a, a race, a, a, an ethnicity even, of people, a people group. That word race, it, it's, um, in Greek, it's ethnos, which would be like, um, you know, Greeks. Greeks are like a race. And, uh, you know, Chinese and uh, British, like just a, a people group related by both blood and government polity, uh, a group. And he's saying, hey, all of you from everywhere, the Jews, the Gentiles, I mean, think about in Acts, when, when, uh, during Pentecost, when all the languages, Scythians and Egyptians and Romans, and every type of people, Christians come from every type of people group, and Peter is now saying, yeah, you're not that anymore, mostly. Now you're this. Your new ethnicity, your new race is a people of God. And you can still be whatever you were born as, but first, you are a people of God by your nature, down to your genetics, you're a people of God. And this, this is why God does not call us to be you know, a group of, of self-associating friends. The church isn't a, a club. It's, you, you, can't, you can't join an ethnicity, but you are. It is, it is something fundamental to your nature. And so when God takes you out of whoever you are and puts you into the people of God, it's not a club that you join. It's not a membership to which you, you have, um, you know, a, a membership that you've achieved. But God is, is fundamentally changing your identity and making you into a, a totally different type of person. And our ancestors now are the saints past. Our nationality is of the cross. Our, our vocation even, our job, is first now a priesthood. And so anything else that we are first, our ethnicity and our ancestry and our, our jobs, our citizenships and whatever associations we have, all of those are now subject to our first identity, which is a people for God's possession. And when we take on this new identity, when the old man passes away and we are all made new, we again find ourselves out of place in this world. That very next verse in 1 Peter, after saying that we're a, a holy race for God's own possession, it says that we will be sojourners and exiles cast out of our old lands, wandering the world. Sojourner is a word you find often in the Bible. It means just a, a, a resident alien, someone who isn't from around here. And when we receive the mercy of God and we become a citizen of his holy kingdom, all of a sudden we become a person who isn't from around all the other places that we are. Maybe we live here, but this is no longer our home. This is no longer our homeland. This is no longer where we are from. As Jesus says in John 18, his kingdom is not of this world. And so, of course, then neither are his people. And again, then, this is a reason to have hope. I find that this is perhaps the single biggest practical advantage of Christianity. This is, if you asked me, what's good about being a Christian? I can tell you, you know, there's like being saved from my sins is the most important thing. But in my day-to-day, my -day, everyday life, the thing that I think actually really is nice about being a Christian is that it gives me a way to satisfy the dissonance that I see and feel in the world 
all of the stuff that I see that is wrong and that doesn't work right and that is dissatisfying and that is hurtful and that is sorrowful and all of the famines and wars and the death and the sickness and the poverty and everything, whether I see it or whether it affects me, all of that stuff that's wrong, so many people stumble over those things and yet I have an explanation. Everyone recognizes that something needs to change but I cannot imagine what it must be like to go through life seeing all these things that I see and yet having no solution, attributing it to random chance or good versus evil in some sort of cosmic sense. But these problems, they can never be solved by mankind, and so to look at that with no hope and no answers would be crushing, and for many it is. So our biggest advantage as Christians, I think, is that one, we know what's wrong, we know that sin, that unholiness, that unrighteousness is the root cause of all of these things. Two, we know what can fix it. We know that holiness and righteousness and God himself and the work of Jesus when he returns will fix these things. And three, we know that for the people of God, all of this is temporary. The blink of an eye, a vapor in the wind, and soon one day all suffering will be gone. Our time in this foreign land will come to an end and we will be called home to be the temple and priests of God forever in his presence. So this is something that we can offer to the world, not that evangelism should be a sales pitch about how great it is to be a Christian, but truly this is a way to speak to the pain and the suffering and the, the emotional and the soul level dissonance that people have with the world. So many people clearly see something is wrong and we can say as Christians, yes, it is. And we know what is right and we know what comes next and we do know what the solution is. We don't have it, but we are it and we know it. And so the people of God, from this truth, have an unshakable hope, knowing that all of the things of this world are not the last word. So the final way that I want to read through this text as we close is to read through considering what the people of God do. We've seen that the people of God are like Christ. They are built together for his glory. They are holy, a priesthood, able to enter his presence. And then that we are hopeful knowing that this world is not the way that things will always be. And so with that then in our hearts, that becoming our identity, what then do we do? So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what do the people of God do? First, they come to Jesus. If you do not believe in Jesus, do it now. If you are a Christian and you do believe in Jesus, but you are far from God, approach. Come close. Repent of your sins. He has promised that he is ready to forgive you. Do not deny yourself the privileges that come from being the people of God by resisting him. Come. Next, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Do not think, as the Pharisees did, that tithing of every little possession while rejecting Jesus and denying mercy to those in need is what is meant by holy sacrifices. The holiness of the sacrifices comes from the soul, and it comes from God and how he has changed us. Our priesthood is no longer one of places and animals, but of spirit and worship. And so then our sacrifices as the people of God are our time and our desires, and our wealth, and the worship that we give God, but all of it with a heart after Jesus. All of it with the holiness that comes only from repentance. Next, we proclaim His excellencies. If we are to be the people of God, we must say so. There's that old aphorism, Share the gospel constantly, and if necessary, use words. It's one of those that's been attributed to all kinds of different people, and no one knows where it came from, and it's absolute garbage. Use your words. Proclaim the riches of God. Boast in the Lord. Tell your friends how good it is to be the people of God. Brag about your church family. Share in your blessings, and give all glory to Jesus, the living stone. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. As we walk and live our lives amongst those who are not the people of God, as we rightly should, we will feel like we don't quite belong. The people around us will see that and they are quick to notice our flaws and the sins we commit as they know that we claim to be a holy people. And so because of this, we must address our sin facing head-on, quickly and seriously, and treat it like it matters a great deal, because it does. And likewise, when we inevitably do fall short, we must be the first to confess our sins, the quickest to admit fault. We must make our necessary repentance and amends for what we do being a blessing to our neighbors so that even people who hate Christians have to admit that at least we're useful, at least we're honest about ourselves, even if they think we're completely wrong about everything, no one should be able to deny that we are a people worth having around. And so let us then consider, as a people, as a church, more than just individually, what it would look like for our church to be honorable among the Gentiles. To consider our reputation not out of pride, not to hide the bad things that we do, but rather that our church, that the people of God would be well known for being such a great people to have around. Because, hey, they don't do everything right, and no one does, but when they do, they fix it, and they deal with it, and they're always there, and they don't stop. So you are, you who believe, the people of God, destined not for disobedience, like most, but rather for glory, 
to be built into a temple and the holy priesthood of that temple, a nation, a priesthood, a people for God's own possession. Take comfort in that. Let that spur you on to holiness. Proclaim God's excellencies. All of this is only true because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your holiness. Thank you that you are so far above us and so good and so perfect and so pure. Because without a creator and without a God over everything who is so holy, we would, we would only be able to fear you. We would not have faith that everything would be put to right. We could not trust that good will prevail over evil. But God, we do know those things because you are holy. So God, even as we are so grateful for your holiness, we also recognize our own lack, our own unholiness. Lord, please sanctify us, change our hearts and our souls to be more like your people ought to be. Please give us the hope and the comfort and the privileges that come from being a chosen people for your own possession. And please give us a sense of belonging and responsibility over what it means to be the people of God. As we've seen laid out here, the people of God receive many good benefits and also have a lot of work to do, a lot of responsibility that we've been given as your representatives here on earth. Let us do well in those things and let us always be quick to repent of our sins, remembering that the only reason why we are the people of God at all is because of faith and repentance in the work that was done by Jesus and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.
See?